Welcome everyone to a belated episode 22 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Here's a story from thesmithsonianmagazine.com. This is written by Natasha Geeling. It's entitled, The Real Johnny Appleseed Brought Apples and Booze to the American Frontier. On a family farm in Nova, Ohio, grows a very special apple tree. By some claims, the 175-year-old tree is the last physical evidence of John Chapman, a prolific nurseryman who, throughout the early 1800s, planted acres upon acres of apple orchards along America's western frontier, which at the time was anything on the other side of Pennsylvania. Today, Chapman is known by another name, Johnny Appleseed, and his story has been imbued with the saccharine tint of a fairy tale. If we think of Johnny Appleseed as a barefoot wanderer whose apples were uniform crimson orbs, It's thanks in large part to the popularity of the segment of the 1948 Disney feature, Melody Time, which depicts Johnny Appleseed in Cinderella fashion, surrounded by blue songbirds and a jolly guardian angel. But this contemporary notion is flawed, tainted by our modern perception of the apple as a sweet, edible fruit. The apples that Chapman brought to the frontier were completely distinct from the apples available at any modern grocery store or farmer's market and they weren't used primarily for eating. They were used to make America's beverage of choice at the time, hard apple cider. Up until Prohibition, an apple grown in America was far less likely to be eaten than to wind up in a barrel of cider, writes Michael Pollan in The Botany of Desire. In rural areas, cider took the place not only of wine and beer, but of coffee and tea, juice and even water. It was into this apple-laden world that John Chapman was born on September 26, 1774, in Lomanster, Massachusetts. Much of his early years have been lost to history, but in the early 1800s, Chapman reappears, this time on the western edge of Pennsylvania, near the country's rapidly expanding western frontier. At the turn of the 19th century, speculators and private companies were buying up huge swaths of land in the Northwest Territory, waiting for settlers to arrive. Starting in 1792, the Ohio Company of Associates made a deal with potential settlers. Anyone willing to form a permanent homestead on the wilderness beyond Ohio's first permanent settlement would be granted a hundred acres of land. To prove their homesteads to be permanent, settlers were required to plant 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees in three years, since an average apple tree took roughly 10 years to bear fruit. Ever the savvy businessman, Chapman realized that if he could do the difficult work of planting these orchards, he could turn them around for profit to incoming frontiersmen. Wandering from Pennsylvania to Illinois, Chapman would advance just ahead of settlers, cultivating orchards that he would sell them when they arrived, and then head to more undeveloped land. Like the caricature that has survived to modern day, Chapman really did tote a bag full of apple seeds, 
As a member of the Swedenborgian Church, whose belief system explicitly forbade grafting, which they believed caused plants to suffer, Chapman planted all of his orchards from seed, meaning his apples were, for the most part, unfit for eating. It wasn't that Chapman or the frontier settlers didn't have the knowledge necessary for grafting, but like New Englanders, they found that their effort was better spent planting apples for drinking, not for eating. Apple cider provided those on the frontier with a safe, stable source of drink, and in a time and place where water could be full of dangerous bacteria, cider could be imbibed without worry. Cider was a huge part of frontier life, which Howard Means, author of Johnny Appleseed, the man, the myth, the American story, describes as being lived through an alcoholic haze. Transplanted New Englanders on the frontier drank a reported 10.52 ounces of hard cider per day. For comparison, the average American today drinks 20 ounces of water a day. Hard cider, Means writes, was as much a part of the dining table as meat or bread. John Chapman died in 1845, and many of his orchards and apple varieties didn't survive much longer. During Prohibition, apple trees that produced sour, bitter apples used for cider were often chopped down by FBI agents, effectively erasing cider, along with Chapman's true history, from American life. Apple growers were forced to celebrate the fruit not for its intoxicating values, but for its nutritional benefits, Means writes. Its ability taken once a day to keep the doctor away. In a way, this aphorism, so benign by modern standards, was nothing less than an attack on a typically American libation. Today, America's cider market is seeing a modest but marked resurgence as the fastest-growing alcoholic beverage in America. Chapman, however, remains frozen in the realm of Disney, destined to wander in America's collective memory with a sack full of perfectly edible, gleaming apples. But not all the apples that came from Chapman's orchards were destined to be forgotten. Wandering the modern supermarket, we have Chapman to thank for varieties like the Delicious, the Golden Delicious, and more. His penchant toward propagation by seed, Pollen argues, lent itself to creating the great, and perhaps more importantly, hardy American apple. Had Chapman and the settlers opted for grafting, the uniformity of the apple product would have lent to a staid and relatively boring harvest. It was the seeds and the cider that give the apple the opportunity to discover by trial and error the precise combination of traits required to prosper in the new world, he writes. From Chapman's vast planting of nameless cider apple seeds came some of the great American cultivars of the 19th century. While the apple finds its geographic origin in the area of modern-day Kazakhstan, it owes most of its popularity to the Romans, who became masters of apple grafting a technique wherein a section of a stem with buds from a particular type of apple tree is inserted into the stock of another tree. Grafting is an integral part of cultivating apples as well as grapes and fruit trees because the seed of an apple is basically a botanic roulette wheel. The seed of a red delicious apple will produce an apple tree, but those apples won't be red delicious. At most, they'll only barely resemble a red delicious, a characteristic that classifies them as extreme heterozygotes of the biological world. Because of its intense genetic variability, fruit grown from apple seed, more often than not, turned out to be inedible. Apples grown from the seed are often called spitters, from what you'd likely do after you took a bite of the fruit. According to Thoreau, an apple grown from seed tastes sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge and make a jay scream. 
When apples made their way to colonial America, they came first in the form of graftings, budded stems from the settlers' favorite European trees, which they hoped to bring with them to the New World. But the soil of America turned out to be less hospitable than the soil the colonists had known in Europe, and their apple trees grew poorly. Moreover, as William Kerrigan writes in Johnny Appleseed and the American Orchard, early settlers lived in a world where land was abundant but labor was scarce. Grafting was a delicate technique that required finesse and time, whereas growing apples from seeds produced a crop with relatively little effort. Eventually, settlers turned to growing apples from seed, producing spitters unfit for eating, but immensely well-suited to fermenting into alcoholic quaffs. Now for something a little different. As you all know, I don't really do a lot of what you'd call original reporting on this show. Um, Up to this point, it's been a collection of other people's stories that just interest me or fit a theme. But I saw a post the other day on the paranormal subreddit that is really just perfect for this show. It is a first-hand account of a parent who has found some audio on his three-year-old daughter's iPod, which is... Um, well, it's deeply unsettling for one thing. Uh, I'm going to start by reading this person's original post word for word, and then I'll play the audio for you. My daughter has previously said that an uncle Mike comes to visit her when she's going to sleep. We thought it might be due to some YouTube video she's seen featuring kids playing with their uncle. Last Friday, she was allowed to keep her iPod with her to go to sleep, and my wife and I discovered this video she had recorded. The audio is super creepy. You can clearly hear her breathing while the whispering is going on. Try breathing in and out of your nose while whispering. It's impossible. I can't make out what the whispering is saying, but it sounds like escape or go to sleep is being said. At the end, you can clearly hear my daughter breathing loudly over the whispering before she ends the video with saying, Why are you cutting my leg off? My daughter is three. I don't know where she'd get the concept of her leg being cut off while laying in her crib going to sleep. So I'm going to insert the audio here. Just like it's been posted, I haven't changed anything about this. May normalize the volume levels a little bit just to make it match the rest of the show, but... Other than that, completely untouched. Take a listen. We could have leg off. So this person says, after listening closer, it sounds like the whispering is saying, do you want me to take, inaudible, to escape? Let's escape before my daughter says, why are you cutting my leg off? As you might imagine, there's a comment thread here that's just rife with speculation. Uh, Check the link in the show notes for that. Some of my favorite possibilities are just a toddler whispering in her sleep. I will admit that at first I didn't even hear the two different voices initially whispering. Or maybe the house is haunted. Some people have posted about dead relatives like grandparents coming back to visit children in the night. Or maybe it's good old-fashioned electronic voice phenomena, EVP. 
Anyway, so there is a user in the comments who has cleaned up and loudened the audio file a little bit. Here's the improved version. Fun stuff anyway, right? Personally, I originally thought I'd be most worried about where a three-year-old would get the idea of cutting legs off. I wouldn't want my kids to end up on the seedier parts of YouTube that might give them nightmares or something. That seems like a fairly easy possibility here. But then I read a comment where somebody had said they thought she was just saying, Why are you putting on Wii Golf? Thanks a lot to user Vryn who posted this for us all to read and gave me permission to use the story and the audio on this show. What do you all imagine is going on here? Anyway, if you want to join that comment thread, it's in the show notes. Or, if you've got any thoughts, you can always contact the show directly. Let me know what you think. On his final afternoon, George Gibson left work early, without explanation. Within a few hours, someone shot the Procter & Gamble researcher nine times in his Westchester home. The killer, who apparently broke in through a rear basement window, also killed Gibson's two pet Bernese mountain dogs, Hugo and Capella. From the DaytonDailyNews.com Cold Case Project Slayings of Westchester Man and His Dogs Remain Unsolved And this is a story by Lou Greico. This story was written in 2013, but I wasn't able to find any other information about it, so my assumption is that it sadly still remains unsolved. We believe he received a phone call at his work that made him leave early, said Detective Doug Ferris, the latest to investigate the nearly 13-year-old cold case. Gibson, 47, was shot to death June 22, 2000. His wife, Paige Smith, also a Procter & Gamble researcher at the time, was in upstate New York on a business trip that day. It's one of those things where nothing makes sense, Smith said last week from Oxford, New York, where she now lives. It's so foreign to me, so unlikely that George would have a passionate enemy. Gibson is hardly the typical murder victim, Ferris said, noting that he did not have a high-risk lifestyle. Gibson graduated from Brown University, then received his degree in veterinary medicine from Michigan State University. After practicing in Vermont, he went to Cornell University, where he received a doctorate in pathology. While at Cornell, he met Smith, who was pursuing her doctorate in veterinary clinical nutrition there. The couple moved from New York to the Cincinnati area about two years before the murder. Gibson worked at P&G's Ross facility and Smith at the Mason branch. Smith and Gibson's sister, Judy, who lives in New York and did not want her last name used, both said that Gibson was a generous man, an animal lover and a pillar of the family. He helped people, was involved with his church and the Boy Scouts, even though he and Smith did not have children. 
Gibson's last day was a Thursday. Smith saw him before going to work. After work, she flew to Norwich, New York. Gibson was seen leaving work about 3.40 p.m., then seen arriving home around 5.20 p.m. Smith became concerned after she could not reach Gibson by phone and the next day asked a neighbor to check on him. P&G employees had called police after Gibson did not arrive at work and officers arrived just as the neighbors were about to enter the home. About 12.30, police found his body on the first floor of the home at 7165 Tylersville Road. Gibson was shot seven times in the head, once in the neck, and once in the chest. The killer fired at least five more shots at the dogs. One was found in the basement near the broken window. The other was found on the main floor. Ferris said that it appeared that someone sat Gibson down, had a talk with him, and then executed him. He described the crime as very personal. Nothing was missing from the home, though some things had been moved around, Ferris said. There were no suspects and no known reason for Gibson's slaying, but police found that Gibson had a secret life after a woman came forward and told them that she had met Gibson through a dating phone service. Police now believe Gibson had contact with several people through the service, Ferris said. Asked about the phone service, Smith said, I guess it's possible, but added that it didn't sound like him. His sister said she found it nearly impossible and described Gibson as very straight-laced and the couple as extremely close. We always said George and Paige together like it was one word, she said. He and Paige had a very tight marriage. It seems unlikely to me. The two speculated that Gibson could have been the victim of a botched hit in which a killer went to the wrong house or that his generosity could have gotten him in trouble. On at least one occasion, Gibson had helped a female acquaintance leave an abusive partner, they said. I could see him trying to help someone who was in trouble, the sister said. But Ferris said that evidence found at the scene points more closely to the dating service, though he declined to say what that evidence was. His family members said they just want to know what happened to Gibson and why. It would be wonderful to have some sort of explanation, his sister Judy said. We'll grieve him all our lives, but at least we'd know what happened. When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold train has hauled it away Paradise and Bull Run coal-fired power plants will close, Tennessee Valley Authority board members decided Thursday, despite some public protest and political opposition over the Paradise plant. The intent is to close the final Paradise unit by the end of 2020 and the Bull Run plant by the end of 2023, agency CFO John Thomas said. 
From KnoxNews.com, a story by Jim Gaines. TVA to close coal-fired power plants in Kentucky, Tennessee. Analysis over the past several months shows that closing two additional fossil plants is the right action to take at this time, financially and operationally, outgoing TVA president and CEO Bill Johnson told board members. It is not about coal. This decision is about economics. The half-century-old coal plants were designed to operate at full capacity about 80% of the time, he said. They can't be speedily started or easily provide varying levels of power. To get these plants to run on Thursday, you have to start them on Tuesday, Johnson said. The changing nature of power demand and TVA's generation system means the two coal plants can only run about 10% of the time, and that's just not cost-effective, he said. The power provider is able to meet its base demand more economically without them, Johnson said. We can avoid over $1 billion of lifetime cost on these units, he said. But the retirements will only drop coal's contribution to TVA's generation system by about 1%, meaning the share of power coming from coal will remain at today's 17% for the next decade, Johnson said. TVA closed five coal plants from 1966 to 2016, including three since 2012. It still operates six. The loss of Paradise and Bull Run will drop that to four. Yet, TVA will spend $2.3 billion on the rest of its coal fleet over the next five years. The two plant closures won't really change what the agency spends on coal, Thomas said. Johnson said he expects TVA to keep using coal until at least 2050. No further plant closures are currently under discussion. The Paradise Fossil Plant in Muhlenberg County, Kentucky, began with two coal-burning units in 1963, adding a third in 1970. The two older units shut down in 2017, and the same year TVA opened a $1 billion natural gas plant on the site. The gas plant employs 30 to 35 people, according to TVA spokesman Scott Brooks. On Monday, President Donald Trump tweeted that TVA should give serious consideration to all factors before voting to close viable power plants, like Paradise No. 3 in Kentucky. In an unusual step, TVA's marketing team responded, Mr. President, coal is an important part of TVA's power generation mix, and we will give serious consideration to all factors as we make this decision. U.S. Representative James Comer, who represents the area, Kentucky Senators Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul, and Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan all decried the proposal to close the Paradise plant, citing roughly 130 jobs which would be directly affected. All four men, like Trump, are Republicans. Board member Kenny Allen, a career coal company executive who lives less than 30 miles from the Paradise plant, sought to postpone the decision until the board's May meeting but his motion failed, and the Paradise closure was approved 5-2, to two, with Allen and A.D. Frazier voting against it. Asked after Thursday's meeting if anyone from the Trump administration contacted TVA officials apart from the president's tweet, Johnson said he and other agency representatives had discussed the plant closures with state and federal elected officials, every major individual affected by it, before the public announcement. The coal burned at Paradise comes from Ohio-based Murray Energy Corp., Johnson said. That company is headed by Robert Murray, 
a major Trump backer. He and his company have contributed more than a million dollars to groups supporting Trump in the 2016 election. Closure of the Bull Run plant near Oak Ridge passed unanimously. Several environmental groups immediately issued statements praising the decision to close the two coal plants. The Bull Run plant opened in 1967. It employs about a hundred, Johnson said. Its proposed closure did not provoke the same widespread outcry, but Thursday afternoon the city of Oak Ridge released a statement on the issue. TVA briefed city officials late Monday before the regular city council meeting, but didn't tell them the agency's final environmental assessment and finding of no significant impact had been issued the same day, according to the statement. We will need to make sure that TVA follows through and works with our communities on environmental and socioeconomic impacts related to the closure, it said. There is long-term potential for hazardous waste discharge from buildings on the Bull Run site, including two waterways, which will require monitoring, the environmental study found. If the plant closes, a new coal ash landfill won't be built unless the state orders it, according to the impact statement. Johnson thought, but wasn't sure, that Bull Run's coal comes from the Powder River Basin in Montana and Wyoming. TVA heard lots of opposition from plant workers and coal miners, but not from coal companies, he said. I did not hear directly or indirectly from any coal suppliers about this decision, Johnson said. About 40% of the workers at the plants are eligible to retire, and TVA will try to help the rest, he said. In past plant closures, almost all those affected were able to move to jobs elsewhere in the TVA system, Johnson said. He speculated on possible futures for the sites redeveloped for another use, test beds for coal ash research, perhaps even sold to another power company and thus remaining in operation. If the plants do actually close, there will be dismantling work for years, Johnson said. Board member Ron Walter asked Johnson for comment on the News Sentinel's February 5th story that TVA acknowledged possible financial liability in workers' lawsuit against Jacobs Engineering, resulting from that firm's cleanup of the 2008 coal ash spill at the TVA Kingston Fossil Plant site. According to evidence in the case, cleanup workers were told coal ash was safe, although it contains more than two dozen toxic chemicals. Jacobs refused to provide them with safety equipment, then tampered with tests to show low exposure. Workers complained of symptoms to TVA supervisors as early as 2013, but those complaints were ignored. More than 900 workers were exposed to coal ash, of whom more than 40, including at least two TVA employees, are now dead, and more than 400 are sick. The lawsuit involves fewer than 75 of those workers. The case's outcome will determine whether hundreds more can seek damages. Johnson said Thursday that Jacobs Engineering wouldn't work without an indemnity clause in its contract. Under that clause, TVA might be responsible to pay some of the costs that Jacobs might incur as a result of the trials, he said. That decision won't be made for years to come. A jury verdict last fall said Jacobs breached its contract with TVA, breached its duty to ensure worker safety, and might have caused conditions that led to illness and injury of the employees, Johnson said but the company hasn't formally been found liable for resulting illnesses and deaths. Those trial decisions are still to come, he said. At that point, we will talk about the indemnity clause, whether TVA pays any of this or not, Johnson said. 
I cannot see a situation where this will affect anybody's rates in the Valley. Without naming the News Sentinel or reporter Jamie Satterfield, Johnson sought to downplay the report, saying the newspaper printed the indemnity provision in August 2017, apparently as part of a legal notice, while TVA has twice included its potential liability in filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. searchers rummage through the abandoned trailer, flipping over a battered couch, unfurling a stained sheet, looking for clues. It's blistering hot and a grizzly bear lurking in the brush unleashes a menacing growl, but they can't stop, not when a loved one is still missing. The group moves outside into knee-deep weeds, checking out a rusted garbage can, an old washing machine, and a surprise, bones. From the APnews.com, a story by Sharon Cohen. Not invisible. Why are Native American women vanishing? Ashley Heavy Runner Loring, a 20-year-old member of the Blackfeet Nation, was last heard from around June 8, 2017. Since then, her older sister, Kimberly, has been looking for her. She has logged about 40 searches, with family from afar sometimes using Google Earth to guide her around closed roads. She's hiked in mountains, shouting her sister's name. She's trekked through fields, gingerly stepping around snakes. She's trudged through snow, rain, and mud, but she can't cover the entire 1.5 million acre reservation, an expanse larger than Delaware. I'm the older sister. I need to do this says 24-year-old Kimberly, swatting away bugs, her hair matted from the heat. I don't want to search until I'm 80, but if I have to, I will. Ashley's disappearance is one small chapter in the unsettling story of missing and murdered Native American women and girls. No one knows precisely how many there are because some cases go unreported, Others aren't documented thoroughly, and there isn't a specific government database tracking these cases. But one U.S. senator with victims in her home state calls this an epidemic, a long-standing problem linked to inadequate resources, outright indifference, and a confusing jurisdictional maze. Now, in the era of Me Too, this issue is gaining political traction as an expanding activist movement focuses on Native women, a population known to experience some of the nation's highest rates of murder, sexual violence, and domestic abuse. Just the fact we're making policymakers acknowledge this is an issue that requires government response, that's progress in itself, says Anita Lukiji, a cartographer and descendant of the Cheyenne, who is building a database of missing and murdered indigenous women in the U.S. and Canada, a list of some 2,700 names so far. As her endless hunt goes on, Ashley's sister is joined on this day by a cousin, Lissa, and four others, including a family friend armed with a rifle and pistols. They scour the trailer where two no-trespassing signs are posted, and a broken telescope looks out the kitchen window. One of Ashley's cousins lived here, and there are reports it's among the last places she was seen. We're following every rumor there is, even if it sounds ridiculous, Lissa Loring says. This search is motivated in part by the family's disappointment with the reservation police force, 
a common sentiment for many relatives of missing Native Americans. Outside, the group stumbles upon something intriguing. The bones, one small and straight, the other larger and shaped like a saddle. It's enough to alert police, who've responded in five squad cars, rumbling across the ragged field, kicking up clouds of dust. After studying the bones, one officer breaks the news. They're much too large for a human. They could belong to a deer. There will be no breakthrough today. Tomorrow, the searchers head to the mountains. For many in Native American communities across the nation, the problem of missing and murdered women is deeply personal. I can't think of a single person that I know who doesn't have some sort of experience, says Ivan McDonald, a member of the Blackfeet Nation and a filmmaker. These women aren't just statistics. These are grandma. These are mom. This is an aunt. This is a daughter. This is someone who was loved and didn't get the justice that they so desperately needed. McDonald and his sister, Ivy, recently produced a documentary on Native American women in Montana who had vanished or were killed. One story hits particularly close to home. Their seven-year-old cousin, Monica, disappeared from a reservation school in 1979. Her body was found frozen on a mountain 20 miles away, and no one has ever been arrested. There are many similar stories that follow a pattern. A woman or girl goes missing. There is a community outcry. A search is launched. A reward may be offered. There may be a quick resolution. But often there is frustration with tribal police and federal authorities and a feeling many cases aren't handled urgently or thoroughly. So why does this happen? McDonald offers his own harsh assessment. It boils down to racism, he argues. You could sort of tie it into poverty or drug use or some of those factors, but the federal government doesn't really give a crap at the end of the day. Tribal police and investigators from the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs serve as law enforcement on reservations, which are sovereign nations. But the FBI investigates certain offenses, and if there's ample evidence, the U.S. Department of Justice prosecutes major felonies such as murder, kidnapping, and rape if they happen on tribal lands. Former North Dakota federal prosecutor Tim Purden calls it a jurisdictional thicket of overlapping authority and different laws depending on the crime, where it occurred, on a reservation or not, and whether a tribal member is the victim or the perpetrator. Missing person cases on reservations can be especially tricky. Some people run away, but if a crime is suspected, it's difficult to know how to get help. Where do I go to file a missing persons report? Perdon asks. Do I go to the tribal police? In some places, they're underfunded and undertrained. The Bureau of Indian Affairs? The FBI? They might want to help, but a missing person case without more is not a crime, so they may not be able to open an investigation. Do I go to one of the county sheriffs? If that sounds like a horribly complicated mishmash of law enforcement jurisdictions that would tremendously complicate how I would try to help, it's because that's what it is. Sarah Deer, a University of Kansas professor, author of a book on sexual violence in Indian country, and a member of the Muscogee Nation, offers another explanation for the missing and murdered. Native women, she says, have long been considered invisible and disposable in society, and those vulnerabilities attract predators. It's made us more of a target, 
particularly for the women who have addiction issues, PTSD, and other kinds of maladies, she says. You have a very marginalized group, and the legal system doesn't seem to take proactive attempts to protect Native women in some cases. Those attitudes permeate reservations where tribal police are frequently stretched thin and lack training, and families complain officers don't take reports of missing women seriously, delaying searches in the first critical hours. They almost shame the people that are reporting. They say, well, she's out drinking. Well, she probably took up with some man, says Carmen O'Leary, director of the Native Women's Society of the Great Plains. A lot of times, families internalize that kind of shame, thinking that it's their fault somehow. The result? Some families start their own investigations. Matthew Lone Bear spent nine months looking for his older sister, Olivia, using drones and four-wheelers, fending off snakes and crisscrossing nearly a million acres, often on foot. The 32-year-old mother of five had last been seen driving a Chevy Silverado on October 25, 2017, in downtown Newtown, in the oil-rich terrain of North Dakota's Fort Berthold Reservation. On July 31st, volunteers using sonar found the truck with Olivia inside submerged in a lake less than a mile from her home. It's a body of water that had been searched before, her brother says, but obviously not as thoroughly or they would have found it a long time ago. Lone Bear says authorities were slow in launching their search. It took days to get underway and didn't get boats in the water until December, despite his frequent pleas. He's working to develop a protocol for missing person cases for North Dakota's tribes that gets the red tape and bureaucracy out of the way, he says. The FBI is investigating Olivia's death. She's home, her brother adds, but how did she get there? We don't have any of those answers. Other families have been waiting for decades. Carolyn DeFord's mother, Leona LeClaire Kinsey, a member of the Puyallup tribe, vanished nearly 20 years ago in La Grande, Oregon. There was no search party. There was no, let's tear her house apart and find a clue, DeFord says. I just felt hopeless and helpless. She ended up creating her own missing persons poster. There's no way to process the kind of loss that doesn't stop, says DeFord, who lives outside Tacoma, Washington. Somebody asked me a while back, what would you do if you found her? What would that mean? It would mean she can come home. She's a human being who deserves to be honored and have her children and her grandchildren get to remember her and celebrate her life. It's another Native American woman whose name is attached to a federal bill aimed at addressing this issue. Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, 22, was murdered in 2017 while eight months pregnant. Her body was found in a river wrapped in plastic and duct tape. A neighbor in Fargo, North Dakota, cut her baby girl from her womb. The child survived and lives with her father. The neighbor, who pleaded guilty, was sentenced to life without parole. Her boyfriend's trial is set to start in December. In a speech on the Senate floor last fall, North Dakota Democrat Heidi Heitkamp told the stories of four other Native American women from her state whose deaths were unsolved. Displaying a giant board featuring their photos, she decried disproportionate incidences of violence that go unnoticed, unreported, or underreported. Her bill, Savannah's Act, aims to improve tribal access to federal crime information databases. 
It would also require the Department of Justice to develop a protocol to respond to cases of missing and murdered Native Americans and the federal government to provide an annual report on the numbers. At the end of 2017, Native Americans and Alaska Natives made up 1.8% of ongoing missing cases in the FBI's National Crime Information Center database, even though they represent 0.8% of the U.S. population. These cases include those lingering and open from year to year, but experts say the figure is low, given that many tribes don't have access to the database. Native women accounted for more than 0.7% of the missing cases, 633 in all, though they represent about 0.4% of the U.S. population. Violence against Native American women has not been prosecuted, Heitkamp said in an interview. We've not really seen the urgency in closing cold cases. We haven't seen the urgency when someone goes missing. We don't have the clear lines of authority that need to be established to prevent these tragedies. In August, Senator John Tester, a Montana Democrat, asked the leaders of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs to hold a hearing to address the problem. Lawmakers in a handful of states are also responding. In Montana, a Legislative Tribal Relations Committee has proposals for five bills to deal with missing persons. In July 2017, 22 of 72 missing girls or women, or about 30%, were Native American, according to Montana's Department of Justice. But Native females comprise only 3.3% of the state's population. It's one of many statistics that reveal a grim reality. On some reservations, Native American women are murdered at a rate more than 10 times the national average, and more than half of Alaska Native and Native women have experienced sexual violence at some point, according to the U.S. Justice Department. A 2016 study found more than 80% of Native women experience violence in their lifetimes. Yet another federal report on violence against women included some startling anecdotes from tribal leaders. Sadie Youngbird, who heads victim services for the three affiliated tribes at Fort Berthold, described how in one and a half years, her program had dealt with five cases of murdered or missing children, resulting in 18 children losing their mothers. Two cases were due to intimate partner violence. Our people go missing at an alarming rate, and we would not hear about many of these cases without Facebook, she said in the report. Canada has been wrestling with this issue for decades and recently extended a government inquiry that began in 2016 into missing and murdered indigenous women. A report by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police concluded that from 1980 to 2012 there were 1,181 indigenous women murdered or whose missing person cases were unsolved. Lucchesi, the researcher, says she found an additional 400 to 500 cases in her database work. Despite some high-profile cases in the U.S., many more get scant attention, Lucchesi adds. Ashley has been the face of this movement, she says, but this movement started before Ashley was born. For every Ashley, there are 200 more. Browning is the heart of the Blackfeet Nation, a distinctly western town with calf roping competitions, the occasional horseback rider ambling down the street, and a hard-scrabble reality. Nearly 40% of the residents live in poverty. The down-and-out loiter on corners. Shuttered homes with meth units scrawled on wooden boards convey the damage caused by drugs. 
With just about 1,000 residents, many folks are related and secrets have a way of spilling out. There's always somebody talking, says Ashley's cousin, Lissa, and it seems like to us, since she disappeared, everybody got quiet. I don't know if they're scared, but so are we. That's why we need people to speak up. Missing posters of Ashley are displayed in grocery stores and the occasional sandwich shop. They show a fresh-faced, grinning woman flashing the peace sign. In one, she gazes into the camera, her long hair blowing in the wind. One of nine children, including half-siblings, Ashley had lived with her grandmother outside town. Kimberly remembers her sister as funny and feisty, the keeper of the family photo albums, who always carried a camera. She learned to ride a horse before a bike and liked to whip up breakfasts of biscuits and gravy that could feed an army. She was interested in environmental science and was completing her studies at Blackfeet Community College with plans to attend the University of Montana. Kimberly says Ashley contacted her asking for money. Days later, she was gone. At first, her relatives say, tribal police suggested Ashley was old enough to take off on her own. The Bureau of Indian Affairs investigated, teaming up with reservation police, and interviewed 55 people and conducted 38 searches. There are persons of interest, spokeswoman Nedra Darling says, but she wouldn't elaborate. A $10,000 reward is being offered. The FBI took over the case in January after a lead steered investigators off the reservation and into another state. The agency declined to comment. Ashley's disappearance is just the latest trauma for the Blackfeet Nation. Theda Newbreast, a founder of the Native Wellness Institute, has worked with Lucchesi to compile a list of missing and murdered women in the Blackfoot Confederacy, four tribes in the U.S. and Canada. Long-forgotten names are added as families break generations of silence. A few months ago, a woman revealed her grandmother had been killed in the 1950s by her husband and left in a shallow grave. Everybody knew about it, but nobody talked about it, Newbreast says, and others keep coming forward, perhaps in part because of the Me Too movement. Every time I bring out the list, more women tell their secret. I think that they find their voice. Though these crimes have shaken the community, there is a tendency to be desensitized to violence, says McDonald, the filmmaker. I wouldn't call it avoidance, but if we would feel the full emotions, there would be people crying in the streets. His aunt, Maybelle Wells, would be among them. Nearly 40 years have passed since that December day when her daughter, Monica, vanished. Wells remembers every terrible moment. The police handing her Monica's boot after it was found by a hunter and the silent scream in her head. It's hers. It's hers. Her brother describing the little girl's coat flapping in the wind after her daughter's body was found frozen on a mountain. The pastor's large hands that held hers as he solemnly declared, Monica's with the Lord. Monica's father, Kenny still smoking, recalls that a medicine man told him his daughter's abductor was a man who favored western-style clothes and lived in a red house in a nearby town, but there was no practical way to pursue that suggestion. He recently visited Monica's grave, kneeling next to a white cross, peeking out from tall grass, studying his daughter's smiling photo, cracked with age. 
He gently placed his palm on her name, etched into a headstone. I let her know that I'm still kicking, he says. Wells visits the gravesite, too. Every June 2nd, Monica's birthday, she still hopes to see the perpetrator caught. I want to sit with them and say, why? Why did you choose my daughter? Even now, she can't help but think of Monica alone on that mountain. I wonder if she was hollering for me, saying, Mom, help. Ashley, 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 Ashley. Some 20 miles northwest of Browning, the searchers have navigated a rugged road lined with barren trees scorched from an old forest fire. They have a panoramic view of majestic snow-capped mountains. A woman's stained sweater was found here months ago, making the location worthy of another search. It's not known whether the garment may be Ashley's. First Kimberly, then Lissa Loring, call Ashley's name in different directions. The repetition four times by each woman is a ritual designed to beckon someone's spirit. Lissa says Ashley's disappearance constantly weighs on her. All that plays in my head is where do we look? Who's going to tell us the next lead? That weekend at the annual North American Indian Days in Browning, the family marched in a parade with a red banner honoring missing and murdered indigenous women. They wore t-shirts with an image of Ashley and the words, We will never give up. Then, Ashley's grandmother and others took to a small arena for what's known as a blanket dance to raise money for the search. As drums throbbed, they grasped the edges of a blue blanket. Friends stepped forward, dropping in cash, some tearfully embracing Ashley's relatives. The past few days reminded Kimberly of a promise she'd made to Ashley when their mother was wrestling with substance abuse problems and the girls were briefly in a foster home. Kimberly was eight. Ashley was just five. We have to stick together, she told her little sister. I told her I would never leave her, and if she was going to go anywhere, I'd find her. That concludes episode 22 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. This show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. <laughs>